Welcome to the Her Define podcast, here to help you define your own means of success. Do you have ambitious career goals but are feeling lost, confused, or even frustrated with where you're currently at? Maybe you have a passion to start your own business but don't know how to achieve it. Hi, I'm Juliana and I've been right where you are at several points in my life. During these times, I've turned to inspiring and ambitious women for guidance to point me in the right direction and lead me to a solution. Each week, here on Her to Find, a successful entrepreneurial or businesswoman will share her real-life experiences and insights while defining the ways in which she achieved success. Thanks so much for listening. Let's get into it. Hey there, and welcome to the second episode of the Her to Find podcast. Today's guest is a very good friend of mine. I admire her drive, talent, and creativity and her natural charisma. Bridget George is an Anishinaabe illustrator, mother, and children's book author. Her first children's book, It's a Mittig, is a dual-language book written in her early days of motherhood, born from the desire to hold space for the Ojibwe language in mainstream places and to fill representation gaps for Anishinaabe children and their families. She is passionate about sparking a love for her language and her son and others' families and is currently working on various projects focusing on amplifying the voices and perspectives of Indigenous youth and women. So welcome, Bridget. I am so happy to have you. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to chat. And we've known each other for how many years? Like four or five? I Oh my God. I don't even, probably around there, I don't even know. Like the last two years just don't exist in my brain. So I have no idea. Yeah, they've, they've sort of been a blur, especially this past year. It's sort of like time is not really a concept anymore. But we've known each other for, for a while. Yeah, totally. Basically, I got hired at Sephora and Bridget was working in the skincare realm of Sephora and then became skin lead. You were just like an encyclopedia of skincare. I mean, sometimes, I guess. <laughs> I just remember anytime I would have a question about skincare or even makeup too, but primarily skincare, you'd be like, okay, well, it has this ingredient, this ingredient, and this ingredient. It does this. If you want to use it with this, it's really good, but don't use it with this because it'll give you a rash. There was just so many things that you just knew. And it was so wonderful working with you because you're always so positive and kind and genuine in your relationships day to day. Oh my gosh, all these positive things. It feels like a hundred years ago, but oh my God, that's so nice. (laughs) Literally, I was just thinking about all of our time we spent together and I'm so sad I can't see some of you guys anymore, but it's great to see where you've gone and what you're currently working on. And I'm just so excited to chat with you today. Let's start off by, can you summarize your career and how you got to where you are today being a sought-after graphic designer in addition to a published children's book author? Oh my gosh. Okay. It's it's kind of a wild ride. Like it doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but um, <laughs> so I went to uh, Fanshawe College for Graphic Design in 2013, 2014, somewhere around there. And I actually it's a three-year program and I stopped the program with a semester left. Um, I had like a bunch of life stuff come in the way and I was like, okay, it's not the time for me to do this right now, but it's okay. I'll come back to it. So I had the idea that I was going to come back to it and it was going to be fine. And I was, that's when I was working at Sephora part-time and I ended up um, staying there for a while. And (laughs) the entire time I was there, I was doing, um, like freelance stuff on the side. It was mostly graphic design, but I kind of like dabbled in illustration. 
And then I, I didn't really like the, I don't want to say like corporate feel of graphic design because I do like designing stuff, but it was just, I don't know, it all felt really structured. And I just, I couldn't do that while also having a full-time job, like going from the structure of a full-time job to the structure of at home doing graphic design and branding was just like, it was too much for me. So I started focusing a little bit more on illustration and developing those skills. So that kind of just was like back burner stuff for a while. And then um, I had Noah. And while I was pregnant with Noah, I was looking for um, kind of like ways that I could make money and stay home a little bit more. The whole plan was to like try to get to part time so I could be a mom more at home. I started looking for children's books when I was pregnant that had um, indigenous characters. And I was kind of looking at more like mainstream places, like the places you would normally go, like chapters. And I was looking on like Amazon and all the like first places you think of when you're looking for a book. And I couldn't find a lot. Like, don't get me wrong. There was definitely some books with indigenous characters, but there weren't a lot of Anishinaabe specific characters. And there's so many nations and like there's a lot of shared experiences. But, you know, it's I wanted something that was specific to who we are. And there weren't a lot of options. So I was like, you know what? I've been like doing illustrations of like the Ojibwe alphabet and stuff like that for his nursery. I'll just like make my own. It'll be fine. And I ended up getting a publishing deal and it kind of all just like took off. So this was all while I was on mat leave from Sephora. <laughs> She's been busy. <laughs> right. So I I have like my my I think he was like three months old when I got the publishing deal. So I have my like three month old at home, got the publishing deal. And um, I had proposed that I illustrate the book too, because I have the background in illustration and graphic design. And I was like 100% ready for them to say, absolutely not. We're going to hire this well-established illustrator. No, thank you. Um, but they they said, yes, they wanted me to illustrate the book too. So um that whole year I was on mat leave, I was working on editing the book and illustrating the book. And then it came out in September. And then from there, I've gotten all, all kinds of other job offers and stuff to the point where I was able to, um, I ended up leaving Sephora and I work at Namorin, the at the Friendship Center in London here. So I work there and I'm there two days a week. And then I'm doing illustrating projects and all kinds of other stuff on the side. So that's the compact summary of my career so far. <laughs> Explain to me in the previous jobs that you have had, how have they shaped you today? I would, I would honestly say that like Sephora actually did give me a lot of like transferable <laughs> skills. And I know that it sounds like super crazy to people <laughs> that have never worked there. Cause they're like, okay, you worked at a makeup store and it gave you all these transferable skills. Okay, sure. I, I got presentation skills through Sephora for sure. Um, doing workshops and things like that that 100% have helped me doing pitches to um, like my publishing company. That was super helpful. Um, and then I'm working on a few projects too, where it kind of required me to like pitch myself. So that was super, super helpful. Um, working at Namorand has been great because it's, it's really like community facing work. And it required like a pretty big perspective shift for me. Like I had to look at things more systemically and it made me notice a lot more gaps that needed to be filled that I could maybe help fill as an artist. So those were two really, really big things. And I would say, honestly, probably the most like 
the most influential, I guess, things that I've learned from other jobs. For you, when you were younger, what did you look to for inspiration? Who did you look up to growing up? Oh, oh my gosh. That's such a good question. <laughs> um, I looked up to my mom a lot. Like um, growing up, my my parents split up when I was pretty young. I think I was like around six when, I, when they split up. So um, I grew up with a single mom for the most part. And um, she just was, she still is just the kind of person that like once she sets her mind to something, it's absolutely getting done. There is not a person, a thing, anything that is going to be able to stand in her way. So um, definitely her, like my absolute biggest inspiration is my mom. Um, My grandma also had a really big role in raising me. And she was, she was the same. She was very, 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 very hardworking. Um, She was the kind of person that again, once she set her mind to something, there was nobody that could tell her that was never going to be done. She was very like making her own jobs. Uh, if she, if she needed money at the time, cause we, we did like struggle a little bit growing up. Um, if she needed money, she was out there like pitching herself to people to like go cut lawns or whatever it was that she needed to do to get it done and provide for everybody she was doing in terms of like art and stuff. Um, my home community has, um, has like a pretty, pretty renowned artist from there. Um, his name is Moses Lunum and he does like this really, really, really gorgeous traditional artwork. It's really influenced by, um, like I want to say, um, like kind of woodland art style. And he, his artwork was a really big influence for me because I saw this person in my home community that was doing these gorgeous paintings and they were all over the place. Like they were in our school. He would have like newspaper articles written about him. And I was kind of like, oh my God, that's so cool. I want to do that. There's so many people I can list off, but in terms of art, I would definitely say um, seeing his work around. And then in terms of like worth work ethic and just like getting it done, absolutely the women in my family. For sure. I really like that, particularly about your mom and your grandmother. Very entrepreneurial, driven, not taking no for an answer. Exactly. What do you think makes for a good story? Honestly, I would say passion. Like you could tell, you could tell a story and it's going to land flat every single time unless you're absolutely passionate about what you're doing. And I think that you have to, you have to believe in yourself and you have to believe in the story you're telling and the impact that it's going to have on um, not just the people who hear it, but like the world around you too. So I think, I think a good story always, always comes from the heart. I know it sounds super cheesy to say, but I, I don't know. I think it always has to come from the heart. And even with like a children's book, the way that my book structured, it's not, um, it's not necessarily like there's a storyline to it, but I think the reason that it's been so well received is because it comes from such a heartfelt place of trying to make trying to make space and trying to create something that I needed for my family. And, you know, obviously there's other families out there that needed that too. So I think anytime you tell a story, whether it's writing a book or even just talking to other people, it it has to come from your heart for it to make an impact for sure. Can you explain the process of writing, illustrating and publishing It's a Mittig? Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, I was so shocked all of the work and time that goes into children's books. It's wild. (laughs) I submitted this proposal like on a whim and was like, okay, well, you know, if they take it, they take it. It's cool. They're just going to like 
take the thing that I submitted and they're going to print it out and it's going to be a book and it'll be really cool, but absolutely not. (laughs) It looks absolutely nothing like it did when I originally submitted it and proposed it. Um, The original proposal is actually the book and the manuscript itself is so bad. (laughs) It's absolutely horrendous. Um, So it started out as um, like a good night poem. So um, the way that the book's structured now is the Ojibwe words rhyme with the English words to make it easy to pronounce, right? So the original poem that I had submitted as part of the manuscript actually was, um, it just like had the Ojibwe words kind of like thrown in there. And we've we've talked about it now and kind of like talked about it as like Ojiblish because it's just like a mash together. So I wrote this poem for Noah and the idea was, okay, I'm going to send I'm going to submit it to publishers. And if they don't want it, it's fine. I'll just print it out for him to have on his own. And it'll just be one copy. So um, I put together a proposal and it had the entire poem written out on it. And it's about five pages. The first page is kind of like a cover letter like you would do on a resume. And I just kind of explained to them like who I am, what my deal is, why I want the book published and why I think it's important that something like this is created and just kind of like a background on myself. So basically, like I said, kind of like selling myself. And then um, I included the manuscript and also um, I put together who I thought the target audience would be. Um, I put together where I thought it could be sold. I put together um, basically like a full proposal. And then um, on the last sheet, I kind of included, um, I took uh, about two sentences from the book and illustrated the way I would in my style and added that on the end as like, hey, if you want to hire me as the illustrator, I can do it. And this is what it'll look like. So it was like this whole little package and I put it together and I sent it to I can't remember the total. I want to say it's probably, it's like between six and nine, somewhere around there. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And the thing is, is that a lot of publishers have this like rule where if you submitted a proposal to them for a book, you have to give them like three months to respond before you submit it to another person. Three months? Yeah. How is anyone able to stay patient that long? Right. I know. So it's, it's crazy. Um, I think three months is like the average. Some of them are even six months, but I, the ones that were six months, I was like, no, thank you. Okay. So they say you're not supposed to, but I a hundred percent submitted it to multiple people at once. I feel like I would do the same. You got to like be your own advocate. Right. So it's kind of like, okay, yeah, mm -hmm. I won't submit it to anybody else. Absolutely not. But (laughs) I think I did three at a time cycle would take forever because they might approve it but then they might not and then if they haven't then you've just wasted all of those months just waiting for them to respond yeah it was it was honestly so brutal because it was like okay I submitted it to three people and now I'm sitting here like okay I'm waiting I'm waiting I'm waiting I'm waiting and then you hear nothing they all have like this little rule too where if you submit it um, they will only contact you if they're interested. So you spend those three months literally just on the edge of your seat, refreshing your email and waiting and seeing, okay, is someone going to reach out to me? And obviously no one did the first round. <laughs> so then I submitted it to some more people. Um, and I was actually super upset because I was originally really gunning for there's um, this indigenous specific publishing house. And I really, really wanted them to pick up the book. But they actually, they didn't take it. And then I started getting rejection letters, which 
would probably make most people upset. But the thing is, is that a lot of the publishing companies specify will only reach out to you if we're interested. So it was kind of, it sounds weird, but it was kind of nice to get rejection letters because it was like, okay, we read your proposal. We really like the proposal. It looks great. We respect what you're trying to do. We love what you're trying to do, but we're just not going to take on this type of book at this time, but reach out to us if you have anything else. I feel like that's good too, because you then have like the security that, okay, it's a no. And maybe you got feedback on it. So how I can improve for next time. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, okay, I know that what I'm submitting, I guess, isn't completely awful because they're responding enough to open up a dialogue, but not enough to actually take my words. <laughs> it's like, it's good, but it's not great. <laughs> so like reassuring. And then I'd kind of um, given up on actually hearing back from anybody at this point. So I was like, okay, whatever, it's fine. And then um, me and my husband, Dave, where um, we are getting ready and we were taking Noah to go visit my grandparents. And I was just like refreshing my email for the thousandth time. And um, I actually, I got an email back from who would be my publisher, Douglas and McIntyre, um, asking me to give them a call to talk about the book. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God. And Dave probably thought I was an absolute nut because I'm walking down the hallway so fast to the car and he's like, what's wrong? Are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And I like, I just didn't tell him what was going on because I couldn't even like put it into words. I didn't know what to say. <laughs> so we get down to the parking lot and I'm just like standing there. And he's eventually like, okay, do you need to like go? Do you like, do we have to go somewhere? Like, are you okay? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, no, I just, I got an email about my book and then Dave starts like basically jumping oh, up amazing. and down. It's like, oh my God, that's amazing. Right. So it was actually, we were reminiscing about it the other day because we had like loaded the baby up into the car and we were both just like basically jumping up and down in the parking lot. Like, oh my God, oh my God. That is so cute. It was honestly like probably one of the cutest moments of my life. So we're jumping up and down in the parking lot. And then the whole way to my parents' house, we're just both in the car like, oh, my God, what do you think they're going to ask me? Like, what are they going to talk about? I don't know what to say. <laughs> we spent the hour car ride, like, just thinking about what they're going to say instead of me actually calling them. So I called and I spoke to um, her name's Anna. She's um, she's the editor over there. And um, she gave me an offer over the phone, like right away and was like, hey, we want to publish your book. Like, what are your what are your ideas? Like, do you want it to be? Do you want it to be like a board book? Do you want it to be a picture book? How do you how do you want it to look? And she was like, okay, great. So we're going to send you over a contract. Um, we're going to send you um, an advance. So usually when you publish a picture book or any kind of book, you get like an advance up front. So it's a certain percentage of whatever royalties. So if they look at your book and they're like, okay, so we think that your book is going to sell, I don't know, say like, they're pretty modest with first-time authors. So they're like, okay, we think your book's going to sell 2,000 copies and your royalty amount is 2.5% off of every book that you sell. We're going to advance you that amount. So that's what you get up front. And then they give you um, like, it's usually broken up into quarters and based on milestones. So she's like, okay, we're going to send you a contract. We're going to send you a quarter of what we think your first advance amount is going to be. And sign the contract and we'll get started on everything. We're going to start editing the book right away. 
So um, we'll send that in the mail and you have to send it back. And it was like this whole thing. What was one of the most surprising things you learned when creating a book? The, the first thing that comes to mind, though, is the editing process. So um, when you submit the manuscript for a children's book, usually it goes through like one or two edits. So they'll assign you an editor and then they'll look over your manuscript and be like, okay, these are the things that I think you need to improve on. And um, for me, it was the rhythm and the rhyme. So I was completely shocked to like realize how much goes behind that. So um, we had to go in and adjust the rhythm and the flow of how you read the book probably about three times. Wow. Yeah. So after that, um, it then we had to adjust the Ojibwe words and make sure that the Ojibwe words were all written the same way, which is super, super hard because it's not traditionally a written language. Um, so we ended up finding um, a linguist in Wisconsin who is a fluent Ojibwe speaker. And her name's Margaret Noden. And she edited the Ojibwe words for us. So she went in, edited it, and then we went in and adjusted the rhythm and the flow again and made sure that all of the English words rhymed with the Ojibwe words. So in total, that process probably took, I want to say probably about eight, eight to nine months of editing back and forth between all three of us. Wow. So, yeah. Such that a long was time. probably the craziest thing, right? And you you look at a children's book and it's like usually like 15 lines for the type of book that I have. And you would think that, okay, you write it out and then it's cute and it's cuddly and it's fun and then it gets printed and it's done. But there's actually so much that goes behind the language in the book. It's crazy. Going back and re-editing it, it could be a little bit crazy feeling because you've already just redone it and then you go back and you make more edit when do you realize that it's enough or that it's it's the best that it can be right I think that's like I think that's one of the I guess like catch-22s about being in a creative profession at all though is that like you know there's always more that can be done there's always more editing there you can always go back and fine-tune something and I I think that that's that's something that I've kind of like adopted even into like my illustration work is that, okay, I'm going to work on this. I'm going to set it down for a little while and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to edit it and edit it and edit it. And like, I don't know, I think it's just like one of those things where no matter what you're creating, it can probably always be a little bit better. There's always room to improve. That's true. That's definitely true. Looking back on the book making process, has it changed or affected your writing process now? Absolutely. Knowing what I know now, I feel like I could probably not have so many back and forths. <laughs> uh, the first few back and forths was like me not knowing what I was doing at all. And I feel like my editor probably was ripping her hair out on the other end of the computer. Um, there is so much like little things that she had to explain to me. And all of it was like, revisiting things that you learn in like grade 12 English <laughs> so, so I was sitting there like okay did, was was that what you wanted and she'd come back and like no no but like like this and I'm like mm, okay so like like this and she's like uh sh yep that'll that'll work that's that's what I wanted so I think, <laughs> I think knowing the process a little bit more now, I think I could probably get a book out a little bit quicker. Do you have any tips or suggestions for listeners who are wanting to improve their writing craft? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one of the best things that you can do is a lot of a lot of people have like come up to me about writing children's books and just kind of like writing in general now. And they're like, hey, can you look at this? Can you look at what I've written? What are your thoughts? And the best piece of advice I can give is do not do that. <laughs> don't, don't go up to your mom. Don't go up to your boyfriend. Don't go up to your sister and give them what you've written and let them read it and ask them what they think. Because I guarantee the more just like everyday people you have in your life that you're getting to look over your work, the more it's going to morph and turn into something that isn't you. So I would say trust, trust your gut, trust what you've written. And if you want feedback, go to one or two people, go to one or two people. Don't, don't show absolutely everyone, you know, because absolutely everyone, you know, is going to feel like they need to give you feedback on something that you can improve. And it just turns into a jumbled mess. So <laughs> seems counterproductive, but the best advice I can give is to just trust yourself. Do you have a favorite page or a favorite word from It's a Mitig? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my my favorite page to illustrate was um, a Jidmo, which is a squirrel. And I just, I don't know, it was really fun. And the page actually, I the squirrel's like this really, really pretty orange color. And the background is um, like a patterned like green leaf. So the contrast behind that was just like really, really, really fun to illustrate. It just, once it was done, it was kind of one of those, wow, so cute. So describe a typical work day and what that looks like for you. Oh, geez, Louise. <laughs> um, so it starts out with wrangling my toddler. <laughs> he is always up at like, oh my God, anywhere between like 6 and 7.38. Sometimes he's gracious and polite and I can stay in bed until 8.30, but it's usually more like 6. Um, so it's getting up, making breakfast, doing his hair, making sure that he's all good for the day. And then, um, my mother-in-law is one of the absolute most supportive people I've ever met in my life. She is an absolute angel. She is the best and she actually does our childcare. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Childcare calls are crazy and the wait list. Oh my God. It's crazy. So she is an angel and does, does our childcare for us. Um, so I'll get him ready and um, take him to her house for a few hours. And then I will usually start off by answering emails, especially lately. I've gotten like a lot of requests for stuff that's kind of outside of the illustration world. Um, so answering emails, checking schedules and making sure that I have enough time to do the things that I asked to do. Right now, I'm working on two things. One of them is, um, it's a pretty big project. It's in collaboration with Capilano University in British Columbia. So they have this, um, this like business incubator program where they focus on like indigenous businesses. And there's this really, really cool lady. Um, her name's Chastity Davis. She does consulting. Um, but she specifically does consulting for businesses and branches of government on indigenous women's perspective. She's in this incubator program right now, and I was hired as the illustrator to illustrate her um, her program that she's putting together right now. So it's called um, Canadian History Through the Lens of Indigenous Women. So um, I'm illustrating all of these moments in Canadian history that were big from a woman's perspective. 
it's a huge job though. It's, um, and it's got a really short deadline. So that's what I'm working on right now. It's quite a big number of illustrations. So it'll usually start out, um, after I've done emails and stuff like that, I'll do sketches for that going through, um, the list and I'll illustrate probably from nine until I say around 11. I'll take a little break. So my eyeballs don't fall out of my head. (laughs) And then, um, I am back to work illustrating pretty much until it's dinner time. Um, I've done like a lot of interviews and stuff like that recently. So I'll try to schedule those like before dinner. And then by then, Noah and Dave are home and we'll do dinner. And that's, that's a day. Very busy, very productive. I love it. A little bit of everything. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. What do you enjoy most about the work that you do? I would probably say it's being able to shift perspectives for people um like being able to shift perspectives for non-indigenous people because a lot of my work does focus on um holding space for indigenous folks so shifting shifting perspectives for non-indigenous people on the way that they see indigenous people and our cultures and our ways of being and then providing visibility and providing a space so that other Indigenous people can look at my work and feel seen and feel heard. Has this pandemic changed the way that you work? Oh, good grief. I love your sayings. Jeez Louise, good grief. I know. I have the vocabulary of like a 60-year-old lady. (laughs) But it's so like endearing. Like I love it. I need to stop swearing. I swear far too much. I need to pick up these references, these sayings. Oh my God. Well, like you were around me before I was a mom and that that was not what I sounded like. It's so embarrassing because like that's how I talk around my son and then I'm around other adults and they're like, wow, okay, so we're very PG-13 right now. (laughs) Okay. um, (laughs) I completely forget the question because all I'm doing is thinking about how I'm actually just a 70 year old woman no that's okay are there any lessons that you've learned during this pandemic okay yes (laughs) it's to make time for yourself um as busy as I am all the time and as much as I try to like carve out space in a day and lay everything out to be perfect and have time slots for everything um I I think it's so important, especially these days, to take time for yourself and to listen to where you are at. I think everybody's mental health right now is just kind of like not too great, kind of teetering. And I think that mental health is absolutely one of the most important things in the entire world. And if you're not feeling your best, you're not going to be able to do your best work. So if I have a day where I have like 10 time slots carved out and I'm like, okay, I'm super, super busy. I don't have time to have lunch. I don't have time to do anything. And I'm just like feeling, feeling really bad. <laughs> I'm feeling really anxious, maybe feeling like a little bit like depressed about where the world's at. I will absolutely look at my schedule and I'm like, okay, you know what? There are two things that absolutely need to get done today. I'm only going to do those two things that absolutely need to get done. 
And the rest of that time, I'm going to set that stuff aside for now because it can be set aside and I'm just going to take time for myself. I love that. I feel like we put so much pressure on to check off all the boxes. So get A, B, and C done. And then we haven't eaten all day. We're exhausted. Our mental capacity is just totally done. We do feel great about getting all those things done, but like at what cost? There's like a lot of strength in being able to say, no, that I can get done another time. It's almost changing the verbiage of I have to do all of this versus I get to put that away for today and come back to it tomorrow and take maybe 30 minutes for me or have a longer lunch or end the day earlier and spend it with my son. Yeah, absolutely. And I can't I can't remember who who said it, but there was like some celebrity that described it as like, okay, you're constantly juggling. And you have to recognize that some of the balls that you're juggling are made of glass and some of them are plastic. And it's okay to drop the plastic ball sometimes because they're not going to break. And you need to remember that it's okay to drop the ball sometimes because it's going to happen. And that's, that's perfectly fine. You're allowed to do that. There can be a lot of negative feedback or a fear rooted in following your heart or freelancing or branching out and not following the typical career path of corporate. Tell me about your process. And if you had any fears, how did you overcome those feelings or negative thoughts or doubts? Good question. (laughs) That's something that I'm still kind of um, working on right now. I, I actually, my job's, my job at Nameron at the Friendship Center, it's, it's technically full time. So once it's safe to do so, um, they expect everybody to go back to uh, five days a week, nine hours a day. And I'm at a point right now with like freelancing and work that I'm doing right now that I don't necessarily have to do that. So it's been like a big discussion in my house whether or not I am actually going to do that or whether I'm going to take the leap to doing art full time. And that's that's a big thing for me right now. And that's something that I'm still still working out is those fears behind like, okay, am I going to be able to like support myself? Is it is it okay for me to do that? And I think the like conclusion that I've come to is that, okay, I've looked at the budget, I've broken it down, I've waited however many months, and I've looked at how many freelance jobs I get in a given month and what the low end is. And if I look at the low end of freelance jobs that I get on average, am I able to still pay the bills? Am I able to support myself and have like a little bit to put away and have fun with and like the answer is yes, I can do that. It's just a matter of, I guess, accepting that your income sometimes is going to be higher some months and it's going to be lower some months. And I think that's like a big part of it is people being worried like, okay, can I actually afford to just do freelance? Can I afford to do that and still live the way I'm living? And I've, I've come to terms with the fact that if I do do that, there are going to be months where I'm not going to have as many jobs and I might not be able to, <laughs> I might not be able to sustain my Starbucks habit. And that's fine. <laughs> the benefit is that you're able to wake up every day and do something you love. You're able to create as a job. You're able to go and make things. And I think that the emotional fulfillment 
and the reward mentally of being able to go out and do that and be your own boss and just kind of like go out in the world and do what you want to do on your own terms is a hundred percent worth maybe having a little bit a less pocket money. So how do you define success or what's your definition of success? I think for me, it comes from like, it comes from a really, a perspective that's kind of like rooted in reconnecting with my identity and like my traditional teachings. And it's, I think that to me, success is responsibility and it's being, it's having the privilege of being responsible to the people around you. And it's the privilege of having accountability to the people around you and being able to lift other people up and being in a space where you can give other people a hand up. And I think if no matter who you are, if you're in a position in any area of your life where you're able to uplift someone else or amplify someone else's voice or um, hold space for someone else, I think that that is success. And I think being able to um, yeah, being able to amplify other people's voices is success. And I think if you're at a point where you're feeling like you are accountable to the people in your community, and that doesn't just mean like the community where you live, like it could be like your online community, it could be the people that you, you know, interact with on Instagram, or you know, the people like your family, if you're feeling like you are accountable in your everyday to them, then I think that that is success. I can obviously only speak from my experience as an Indigenous woman, but I think like this, it's a similar story for like a lot of other BIPOC people too, where historically our stories have been told by other people. And I think that it's so critical to, a lot of people talk about like representation, but I think it's so critical to hold space for people to tell their own stories from their own perspectives. So that's a, that's a big part of like what I want to be able to do with my work. So I think as long as I'm able to do that in some capacity, I'll, I'll feel successful. What are your tips for others that have a creative side, but don't know how to start freelancing or expressing that creativity? Um, it's, <laughs> it's at face value. It doesn't sound like very good advice, but just go for it. Like just, just do it. Start creating, start making any free time that you have, just go ahead and make something and um, practice your craft and get your work out there. Like if, if you want to start breaking into the illustration world, create illustrations, put them out there. And it might be that the, for the first little while, you know, you might not get any freelance jobs, you might not get any commissions and that's okay. As long as in that time, you're still focusing on doing you and, getting better for yourself, eventually people are going to come to you. So I would say practice, practice, practice. And no matter what you do, just create. That's great. What's the most valuable piece of advice you've received during your career? Have faith in yourself. <laughs> I have a tattoo that says, literally says, keep the faith. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just, just have faith in yourself. Trust your gut is another thing. I feel like a, a lot of the time I find myself like having an idea for something or feeling a certain way or getting, <laughs> I 
I feel so cheesy saying it, but like getting a vibe off of something. And I'm like, ooh, this doesn't feel good or this doesn't like feel right. Like there's just kind of some weird energy happening here. And then I start doubting myself and I'm like, ooh. And then it turns out later on, like, okay, you know what? Maybe that wasn't the right, the right place for me to be. Maybe that wasn't the right job for me to take on in that moment. So I I find myself like doubting myself a lot and doubting my skills and ability. And I think that's like similar for literally everybody on the planet, but yeah, learning to trust myself more and having faith in myself and having faith that I know what I'm doing and I can trust that I'm on the right path and I'm doing the right thing. Yeah. So true. And I feel like women just in general, there we're more geared to just doubt ourselves or think that we're not capable of doing something when we most certainly are. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like, that's, that's no fault to like women at all, because it's like, you know, we've, we've literally been raised to doubt ourselves. During your negotiations with publishing, how did you advocate for yourself when you were uh, creating your proposal? You said, Oh, I would really love to illustrate it. And this is how I would do it. What were the other ways that you stood up for yourself or made suggestions? Um, I think, I think I was really lucky with my publisher and that they, they were kind of like all for any, anything that I put on the table. They were just kind of like, yeah, 100%. Absolutely. Let's do it. They were very like gung ho about everything. There's been like talks of my book being made into like a TV show. Wow. And part of that. Congrats. So super exciting. Um, I've been learning a lot about like TV production and stuff lately because it's just like, it's in negotiation stage. So there's there's like a lot. It's not official. It's just kind of like whispers. Um, nothing set in stone, but a lot of a lot of that has involved in me advocating for myself because with the way that that's structured, I would have less control over the way that things are created. And I think for me personally, with the content of my book, it's so critical that it's um, in my culture we talk about stuff being like done in a good way. And I think it's so critical because you're dealing with indigenous language and reclamation of indigenous language and identity. It's so critical that indigenous voices are there at the table, creating, making, writing, editing every single step of the way. I had, I had made really, really clear with my publishing company that like, okay, yeah, I'm definitely interested in this, but I would require that if it made to um the offer stage which is basically when like um or option when if it makes it makes it to the option stage which is when um like if you have a book you've sold the book rights to um whatever production company to start um making it and writing it if it makes it to that stage part of the contract is is that i want to be hired as a consultant on the series I don't want the series to be made unless I'm there to consult to make sure that along the way I'm able to pick up, pick up on anything and make sure that it's done in a good way. And part of that was, I guess, acknowledging and realizing that they might not want that. They might not go for that. They might not accept that. I guess I kind of just came to terms with that in asking for that and in standing up and requesting that and saying, if this doesn't happen, I don't want it, that there's a 50-50 chance that that opportunity might fall away. But if it does fall away, that is 100% okay, because if it's not done on my terms and it's not done the way that I want it to be, then it wasn't meant for me in the first place. 
when it comes to advocating for yourself, I guess it's understanding that when you stand up for yourself and what you want, sometimes there are going to be times where, you know, it doesn't work out the way you want it to, and you're not going to get what you want. And that's okay because you shouldn't have to accept anything not on your terms. Oh, yes. (laughs) Describe an early experience where you learned that language had power. You know what? I didn't realize the value in language and the power of language until I got a lot older. Growing up on the reserve, I guess one of the one of the privileges that I had was that instead of being taught French as a second language, you get taught Ojibwe as a second language so that you're able to like, you know, learn your ancestral language. Um, but I didn't really value that a lot growing up. So it just kind of like went in one ear and out the other and like nothing ever really stuck. And like language is one of those things where like, you know, you use it or you lose it. It's gone. So after I'd like done the mandatory language classes, I stopped really speaking the language and I a hundred percent lost it. Like there was just basic things that I remembered. And then as I got As I got older and became a mother, I realized how important and how critical it was that I speak that language around my son and that I pass that along and that we keep that language alive. As I learned the language as an adult, I realized how much identity is tied to language and how much culture is tied to language and like absolutely everything about who we are is tied into the language that we use and you know, that's not even just with like indigenous languages, it's with like English and how you talk to yourself and the words that you choose to use when you interact with other people and the words that you choose to use in your inner monologue when you think about yourself or the work that you're doing, all of that has such a huge impact on your perspective and how you view the world after that conversation with yourself or with another person is done. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. You mentioned on your Instagram that it's taken a long time for you to know your family's background and history. What has that process been like and how has it shaped you into who you are today? Oh, wow. (laughs) It's, it's, it's been a lifelong process. And I think it's one of those things where it's going to be ongoing. So like the, that post was in reference to me discovering that my entire life I had like thought and that my family was just Ojibwe like we were just Ojibwe and I found out a few years later that we were also Potawatomi which is like another um, another tribe that's a part of the same like nation and um, this past month I also discovered that we're also Odawa which is another another separate tribe that's a part of the same nation. So we're all still Anishinaabe, but we're so many different parts of that nation. Um, And I think it's, it's a really unfortunate reality of being an indigenous person in a colonial country is that I wasn't meant to know my family history. I wasn't meant to know any of that. And all of that was meant to be lost. And like, it's not a coincidence that my family doesn't know our history, that we don't really know who we are. That's a hundred percent by design is that we weren't supposed to have an indigenous identity. So it's, it's honestly the process and learning my family history and learning who I am and reconnecting with my culture and my identity. I would describe it as like a healing process for me. Because it's like the more I learn, the more the more whole I feel as a person. 
And I try to look at it as like, you know, the healing process can be really challenging at times. And it's like, sometimes I'll discover stuff about my family or I'll learn stuff or get in a greater understanding on like why some things are the way they are. And it, it can hurt a little bit sometimes because it's like, okay, this is just the reality and that sucks. But I try to look at it as me discovering these things and me going on this process of like learning my family and reclaiming my identity. Um, it's not just like healing myself, but it's creating a smooth path for my son to walk down. And it's healing the people that come after me, but also closing those gaps and healing, you know, the traumas and the negativity that happened to my family before me because they weren't able to know that either. Yeah. Wow. I feel like that's, it's incredibly overwhelming, but very necessary. Yeah. That's a hundred percent how I would describe it too. Is it's, it's been really overwhelming at times, but I guess I just try to look at it as like, okay, one step at a time you know, there's, there's a lot to learn. There's a lot that I don't know. And I just, I just need to take it bit by bit. So explain how you felt reading your children's book to your son, Noah, for the first time. I bawled my eyes. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Um, When you publish a book, you always get like an author copy or like a few. I think I, I got 10 in total. Your publisher gets a printer's copy, like a preview of like what the book will look like once it's printed. So they can be like, okay, great, print it. Um, And they had, I think they initially got like something like five print copies. And they had to keep one at the publishing house. And then they had to like send them to all these like various people that were like critical along the way for them to approve it. Afterwards, they sent me one of the copies and they were like, yeah, you're going to get your author's copies. But we just wanted you to like see it printed out and like hold it in your hands holding it in my hands after like over a year of work on it was like the craziest feeling because like okay I'm illustrating I'm writing it's all on a screen but like now it's here in my hands and the very first thing I did was like crack it open and read it to Noah it felt like you know like all the work and everything just had come like full circle one of the pages I illustrated um, my son and my mom reading a book together, opening that up and seeing that while like reading it to him just felt like it felt like everything was just like really complete. And, you know, I had like finished my mission. <laughs> so you said on Instagram um, in one of your captions, you wrote, I used to hope that Noah would grow up and think it's so cool that I wrote this book for him, but I'm realizing that would be better for him to not think it's cool. I hope that he grows up and it's so normal to have books like this and representation like this that he doesn't even bat an eye about it. So can you elaborate on this and why amplifying voices, sharing space is so important within literature and particularly children's literature? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Growing up, I only saw white characters. I only saw like, um, I only saw like Eurocentric features and it, it had a pretty big effect on me and like how I view myself. So seeing that constantly was like, okay, this is what like, you know, just as like an example, like this is what a princess looks like. This is what someone who's like beautiful looks like is, um, I don't look like that. So I need to do everything I can to look as close to that as possible. Um, so I think it's really critical for kids to see, see themselves, see people that look like them so that they're confident in who they are so that um, they don't have, I guess, like the same identity issues that I had growing up. 
And what I mean by, um, by I used to hope that it was, he would think it's cool, but now I hope that he thinks that it's just like normal and doesn't really bat an eye at it is that I hope that he sees enough representation and enough space being held for not just his identity, but identities that are different from, I guess, like that Eurocentric view of the world that it's just, it's just normal. I just want him to grow up in a world where space is shared equally and that there isn't an other. I just have one final question for you. So what are you most excited about right now? What are some big projects that you're working on? You mentioned a few, if you just want to elaborate on those. I would definitely say right now the um, the Canadian history from the perspectives of Indigenous women course that I'm illustrating for right now. I'm really, really excited about that. Um, I To illustrate it, I had to like go through and read all the modules and like watch all the videos and basically like complete the course myself so I knew what I was doing. And it's really impactful. Like the work that's being done on that course is just it's great. I think it's, it's going to have a really big impact on people that might not normally see that perspective. And it's, it's really, really exciting to be given that responsibility to take on that role of, you know, creating visuals for it. And then I, I'd like briefly mentioned the project with um, the Lambton Heritage Museum. Um, so that's a super exciting one. I, I had illustrated like a map of my home community and um, kind of like labeled places that have like an impact on me and like my perspective and like my life map of my home community. And a few people saw it and um, the Lambton Heritage Museum, which is like my home county, um, they're bringing in an exhibit from someone else in my community that basically focuses on um, the history of the area and they had thought that it would be really cool if I created a map and um, we brought it to the school that I used to go to. So um, Hillside School in my home community is the school on reserve and um, brought it to the school and gave the kids there like blank maps of the home community so that they can go through, label their own things and kind of like examine their own personal connection to like the land that we grew up on. And um they're going to create like an interactive map of it where, you know, certain spots will have like videos of kids talking about, you know, why the community is important. So that's, that's another thing I'm really, really excited about right now. I want to say miigwech, which means thank you to Bridget for taking the time to tell her story and detail her experience creating her first children's book. She is a true inspiration and leader. I appreciate her elaborating and detailing the incredible need to amplify and hold space for diverse voices. If you'd like to hear more from Bridget, I've linked her Instagram, website, and book. It's a mid-take in this episode's show notes. Thank you so much for listening to the Her Defined podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to like, subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I want your feedback. Do you have any successful entrepreneurial or businesswoman in your life who should be featured on an episode of Her Defined? If so, send me a DM on Instagram at Her Defined Podcast or by email at herdefinedpodcast at gmail.com. Today's episode has been produced and edited by yours truly, Juliana Dalacosta. Be sure to check back next Tuesday for another episode to hear her stories, hear her advice, hear her defined. <laughs>